Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts 17. We're in the middle of Luke's narrative of Paul's second missionary journey. In the last chapter, we saw Paul and Silas arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel in Philippi. It was mob justice, and there was no due process, and Paul made the magistrates aware of his Roman citizenship and forced them to apologize, likely in order to provide some protection in precedence for the new believers in the region. However, They are asked to leave, and having secured what protection he could for the new church, Paul and his companions now hit the road once again. Chapter 17 carries on the story as they journey westward and southward through Macedonia. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Let's pause here and just appreciate the resilience of the Apostle Paul. It was about 160 kilometers from Philippi to Thessalonica, and Paul and Silas walked that shortly after having been beaten with rods by the city magistrates. That's remarkable in and of itself, and that helps us appreciate what Paul says later when he writes a follow-up letter to the church that was eventually established in Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. How many times have you just read over those verses, that verse, and not fully visualized or appreciated what's actually being said here. Paul has just been beaten and abused, and it took strength from God just to get him 160 kilometers down the road, let alone to get him back up into the pulpit. I think it's useful to see that. We need to see the resilience and the empowerment that must inevitably characterize true gospel ministry. To do God's work in this fallen world, you're going to need generous and continual spiritual provision. Thanks be to God. Paul has that in this story. He limps out of the frying pan of Philippi, and he leaps into the fire in Thessalonica. He goes right back into the synagogue next Sabbath morning. Now, I think that's worth seeing as well. Paul says, even after saying in, in 1346 that he was taking the gospel to the Gentiles, 
Nevertheless, even still, we see here in chapter 17 that it is his habit to begin evangelistic campaigns by preaching in the Jewish synagogue. I think that's worth seeing because many people are attracted to the sort of preaching that Paul models for us at the end of Acts 17 when he's preaching on Mars Hill to a bunch of pagan unbelievers. There are whole churches and movements named after that style of engagement. But we should just note that Paul is not a one-trick pony. He doesn't have just one style, one approach. In fact, he says that it is his habit, his default pattern is to begin in the synagogue. Listen, friends, understand this. A lot of evangelism happens inside the walls of the church. Yes, of course, a lot happens out in the marketplace and in the public square. Absolutely. But a great number of people hear the gospel and get converted when the covenant people gather together to sit under the word of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that the biggest mistake a pastor can make is assuming the salvation of his own congregation. There are always unsaved people sitting in church, and they are usually among the most receptive people to the message of the gospel. So Paul begins there. His habit was to begin preaching in the local synagogue, which you could do because it was customary to invite any qualified visitor to offer a message. Paul was certainly qualified, and he took advantage of that opportunity. It appears that he preached for about three weeks in the synagogue, and then, as was often the case, he was kicked out. And then, as was often the case, he took a bunch of converts with him and started a church in someone else's home. Now, it's not hard to imagine why that was so incredibly disruptive. Imagine if a visiting pastor preaching in your home church for three weeks while your pastor was on vacation was saying things that you'd never heard, presenting the truth in a a way you'd never heard before. Then imagine that your elders and your returning senior pastor kicked him out and banned him from ever returning. Then imagine that half your congregation walked out the door and started meeting in the home of the former chair of the board. That is exactly what we see happening in these stories. Paul was turning the world upside down, and the world wasn't taking it lying down. We see that in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have now come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. You see in the pattern? Again and again, Paul went into a church, a gathering of believers in God who were reading the Old Testament and looking for the one who was to come. They would, of course, been mostly Jews, but also some proselytes that's that are Gentiles who've taken circumcision and have converted. And then also this sort of fringe or penumbra of what we call fabuminoi, uh, God-fearing Gentiles. And he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And inevitably, 
it would divide the church. It would start a riot or an upheaval, and Paul would get run out of town, whereupon he would dust himself off and do it all over again a few miles down the road. That's the pattern. That's what's going on here. Paul gets kicked out of Thessalonica, and he takes up shop in the next town down the road, the city of Berea. He goes there, and once again, he begins preaching in the synagogue. Verse 11 says, Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. These Bereans are often held up as a model of reasoned inquiry, and rightly so. Unlike the flash mob of Thessalonica, these noble or generous Bereans want to take their time and search the scriptures and really think their way through what Paul is telling them. Praise God for their example. In this age of instantaneous outrage and social media lynch mobs, we need some more people, particularly Christians, who are willing to slow down and think carefully and biblically through complex issues. Good on them. That's exactly right. That's how we ought to be doing it. Because as always, the barbarians are knocking at the gates. Verse 13 says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after seeing or after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This brings us to the part of this chapter that we are likely most familiar with. Paul was probably just supposed to wait there in Athens and have a sort of vacation and recover from his wounds, but of course, that isn't what he did. Verse 16 says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, let's just pause and see that. Even in Athens, Paul began in the synagogue. He wanted to start with those who had the most background. That was almost certainly going to be the most fertile soil. Those people would at least know the basic framework. They would know about God, about sin, and about a promised solution to the problem of sin and the hope of being reconciled back to God and back to our original design and calling. That's the story that Jesus makes sense within. And obviously, those are the people best prepared to hear and respond to the gospel. So Paul started there, and then he overflowed into the marketplace. Verse 18 says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So here we see Paul being invited into the public square. They recognized that he was saying something different. By the way, hear that. If you want an audience in the public square, you can't just mimic everything you hear in the public square. You have to be saying something different, something otherworldly. Paul was, and the people in the public square wanted to understand what that was. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, whole books have been written on Paul's speech on Mars Hill. Mars Hill, by the way, is just another name for the Areopagus. Mars and Ares are two different names for the same pagan god. But whatever you call it, the address that Paul gives on that hill has been taken as a pattern for engagement with men and women who have little to no familiarity with the basic biblical worldview. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, in a world of infinite gods, often supported by one pantheistic deity, cyclical views of history, sub-biblical understandings of sin, multiplied idolatry, dualism that declares all that is material to be bad and all that is spiritual to be good, tribal deities and not a little superstition, Paul paints a worldview of the true God, a linear view of history the nature of sin and idolatry, impending judgment, the unity of the human race, and the oneness of God, all as the necessary framework without which his proclamation of Jesus makes no sense, closed quote. Are you hearing that? Paul's speech on the Areopagus is essentially pre-evangelism. When you're speaking to people with little to no familiarity with the biblical worldview, this is the sort of stuff you have to talk about before you get to Jesus. 
if they don't know that there is a God who's sovereign over all, if they don't know that human beings were supposed to be under God and over, over everything else, if they don't know about the fall, which explains why we are not now the way we sense we should be, then how in the world are they going to make sense of Jesus? They'll just turn Jesus into an idol or a teacher or a self-help guru that will fit in very nicely beside all their other gods. So you have to start at the beginning and you have to talk about the end. Because if you don't tell people that there is a judgment coming, then you haven't told them the truth about who Jesus is and why he has come in the first place. The job of the evangelist is to talk about the Jesus that fits into the story, the story about who God is and who we are and how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if you're speaking to people who know the story, then you just talk about Jesus. Now, make sure it's the Jesus of the Bible, mind you. But if you are talking to people who don't know any of that other stuff, then of course you tell them the story and then you give them Jesus, right? He's the climax. He's the hero and he's the point. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 